Hello and welcome to a lock-in at the Crate and Crowbar. This week we strike from the shadows to meet out a legally questionable form of cinematic justice to Matt Reeves' recent Batman film, called, cleverly, The Batman. I'm Marsh Davis and answering my signal tonight are two spandex-clad maniacs known to the newspapers as 7 out of 10 like a boy, aka Tom Senior. Hello. And the Lanarkshire Loomer, aka Graham Smith. <laughs> Hello. Well remembered that I'm from Lanarkshire. That's uh, that's some good good Graham lore. It's <laughs> true. Uh, I hope you don't mind me blowing your secret identities, um, but it seems important for the task at hand. Welcome mm. to the morally grey world of grittily rebooted comic book vigilanteism, guys. Are you comic book fans in general? What is your sort of level of engagement with the uh, multimedia intellectual property known as the Batman? Um, I I would say that I was a comic book fan in my early 20s. I went through a phase. Um, I feel like this was quite common. It was an era when lots of people were talking about graphic novels. They were, mm. they were starting to get, to get some cultural cachet mm. um, beyond just the superhero stuff. And so I started reading graphic novels and then I went back and started reading some comic book stuff as well. And so I've read some of the some of the more famous superhero comics, and I've read a bunch of some of the the more prestigious stuff. And now I've barely read anything except for occasional manga. In terms of Batman, I've seen most of the films and quite a bit of the cartoon and quite a bit of the Adam West. I would say, like mm. I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty familiar with Batman. Tom, are you a Bat fan? How do you how do you fit into this, do you, and how do you rate the various film incarnations? Yeah, so I've seen all the films. Uh, I, uh, I've enjoyed Batman as a character since I was young. Um, I think, uh, during, as Graham says, like during the sort of graphic novel repackaging of like uh, comic books as serious literary fiction, sort of. Um, uh, so I read, I read the sort of Frank, Frank Miller ones, um, and I've read a bunch of the the, the runs because um, you could get a bunch of them via like. Even you know, uh, like Amazon subscriptions and stuff, a lot of them are, are, are there. Uh, I like comic books. I get Marvel comic books delivered semi regularly on a subscription from the US, mostly like Spider Man stuff, because I'm kind of interested in how uh, people choose to modernize the su these superheroes and the supervillains, the new sort of heroes and villains they choose to create, and what sort of uh, cultural archetypes they're trying to tap into to make Spider Man or Batman relevant today. Um, and I think uh, the Batman is doing a fair share of that as well. Mm. How do you guys feel about the the previous films? I mean, um, you know, the, the the 90s run versus the Snydery run versus the nolan -y run thus far. So I liked the, um, uh, I really liked the first film. Tim Burton's? Tim Burton's uh, first films. Michael, uh, Michael Keaton. As Michael Batman. Keaton as Batman. And there's actually kind of, Kind of a sense of humor to it, but it wasn't as slapstick as the uh, you know Batman and Robin and the stuff that came later. Uh, yeah. the, the Snyder stuff I found just utterly tedious, uh, and the Nolan stuff was indulgent, but it still had exciting kind of action scenes. And Batman was an exciting kind of characters to watch when he was allowed to be Batman and not a quite a dull Bruce Wayne figure. Graham, do you feel similarly? I haven't seen any of the Snyder stuff actually. That's like I haven't seen any of the recent DC cinematic universe films. That's where I fall out. Um, but I'm a big. I'm <laughs> I don't a, think you've missed anything. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I hear. I'm a big fan of the Burton films, though, and yeah. the Nolan films. I think 
now, um, removed from them both, I think I probably prefer the Burton films. Like I went back to Batman and Batman Returns quite recently and to Batman Begins, The Dark Knight and The Dark Knight Rises. And I think the Burton films hold up much better. There's something about Nolan's attempt to make Batman legitimate, which renders those films, I think slightly more boring <laughs> to rewatch mm. essentially but i think the dark knight is still a great film certainly um, but the two on either side of it aren't i don't think there's a kind of glossy self-seriousness to those films now which looking back on it feels more ludicrous and desperate <laughs> i think <laughs> whereas uh the tim burton films which have their faults what he knew what kind of film he was making he didn't try and uh have pretensions towards high art in it i don't think in the same way that nolan probably imagines his batman films to be so i i enjoyed the kind of hyper realism of those films like you know gotham was really like crazy like full of gargoyles and um uh, you got to danny elfman's fantastic soundtrack as well it was very kind of like showy and pompous in a way that i really enjoyed and it it sort of accepted that uh, batman is fundamentally from the suit forwards like slightly ludicrous character and you know just set the tone accordingly the one i like best i think it's batman returns which has catwoman in it yeah played by michelle pfeiffer and penguin played by danny devito Mm. and it's great fun throughout and it kind of understands that the villains don't need to just be horrible evil villains like penguin in that is like an edward scissorhands style character where you sort of root for him there's something forlorn and sad and funny about his um almost silent attempts to become mayor of gotham and getting getting swept up in this campaign by people around him like it's 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 satire and it's funny and it's kind of joyous and theatrical mm. um marsh you've asked these questions you didn't mention uh joe schumacher's <laughs> Batman, yeah, which uh, is distinct from burton's quite substantially in those later films um and they're obviously trash but uh, <laughs> <laughs> i still like i went to the cinema that was the kind of era because the burton's film what the first one was like 89 when i was being four years old so the the first batman films i went to see at the cinema were like batman and robin and mr freeze played by arnold schwarzenegger Weirdly, though, puns. i mean i feel like they are even though they aren't obviously by tim burton uh, I feel like they're part of the same run. I feel like the continuity was maintained. Like it wasn't meant to be a reboot of Batman between no. those Batman films. It was meant to be a, a continuation of the the same story that began in in the first one. I really enjoyed Batman Forever from that run. So you've got the, Jim Carrey as the Riddler in that, which is uh, you know the polar opposite of the Riddler in the Batman <laughs> in this film. Uh, and I think uh, and Two Face was in it as well. And it was just really kind of super colorful as a film lots of kind of really looped like silly almost um pantomime performances from the villains in particular and to me like a lot of what makes batman really fun is the villains like because they're so silly and weird um and some of the a lot of them are a bit rubbish um but you know that contrasting with the seriousness of batman as a figure uh, is part of the fun for me that film couldn't be less like the one <laughs> yeah, right. we're about to discuss. I mean, given that, how did you go? I and mean, what were your expectations going into this film? I assume you knew that it was, you know, quote unquote gritty. Uh, mm. And it obviously follows on the heels of um, the, the what I think was an awful film, Joker. Yeah. Um, 
couple of years ago. I mean, so yeah, what what was your take on it going into it? Uh, I expected it to uh, attempt to be like a you know a study of uh, how to uh, try to fix or do your small part in a moral cesspit from which there is no ultimately no escape. So Gotham and like uh, New York City, City in the eighties and that kind of stuff. A lot of the imagery pulls from that, and it's this idea that you know crime is rife, everyone is corrupt, no one is capable of good. Um, but can you change that? Is there anything you can do to change that? And that is kind of like going into that, and that is what it's about, I think. Um, I think like, it doesn't really say much about that, it just it reveals everyone to be you know a, a bit wrong, Batman included, Bruce, Bruce Wayne included. Mm. Interesting, I think we may, oh yeah, I, I might disagree with that, but we'll, mm, we'll get to that as we discuss, Graham. I'd seen the trailer going into it, and I liked that trailer. You know, it, it uses the the recurring score that happens throughout throughout the film, which mm. I won't I won't replicate. If you've seen the film, you'll know it. Um, mm. And it's it's it was very moody, and I had some interesting like shots and cinematography, and so like I was cautiously optimistic based on the trailer. Um, after not, you know hearing that the Snyder films were terrible and thinking the trailers looked so bad that I didn't even bother to see them. Mm. But what, what about you, Marsh? What did you think of it? I had some trepidation because uh, I didn't didn't jibe with, I mean, I haven't, obviously Snyder's grim dark stuff is absolutely dreck, dumb idiocy. Uh, where And and I thought the, the recent um, Joker uh, was very... Um, misguided (laughs) in both this kind of moral outlook but also it's sort of very um brazen uh, aspirations to be a better form of cinema than it actually was uh i found it quite foul (laughs) i would say so and actually the the kind of um anxieties that you had uh about this world being corrupt beyond uh any chance of redemption I think that's always a danger for uh, the Batman in general, and you know, vigilante stories. Uh, Frank Miller's run on this yeah. is uh, is particularly noxious, I think, because it it creates an excuse for just total uh, nihilism and uh, uh, selfishness, because the world is beyond saving after a certain point. So those those were my fears that that it would play to that. Um, I think it references that, but I actually think it gives a much more ultimately a more sort of hopeful view of things. Is that how you felt coming out of the film overall? Um, I felt very tired coming out of the film. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was my like foremost like feeling, but um, I did sort of. I, I I did like the Batman. I, I do like Robert Pattinson as, as Batman. Yeah. I think he's very very good in it. Actually, mm. um, uh, I love that he's just uh, as Batman. He, a um, he talks like a normal person talks, and not <laughs> like the Nolan films. Um, but he's also just quietly furious and quite quite broken for most of it. And part of it, you know, the journey goes on is perhaps to you know, become a more useful vigilante than he was at the start of the film. Uh, and I think it's interesting that in the first sequence, it shows someone uh, performing an armed robbery and it's, it's actually a fantastically shot sequence. I love it. Uh, and uh, the camera keeps focusing, going in, zooming in on the shadows and implying that Batman might be in any shadow and the uh, goons are scared of the bat signal going up. Um, but he doesn't stop the armed robbery. He just beats up a load of random thugs somewhere else. And uh, it's almost like he has this unfocused rage that uh, does become 
does become clearer and his purpose becomes clearer throughout the film. I think that's kind of the arc he's supposed to go on. Um, so I did, I found that satisfying. Um, I still, I'm just sort of not sure about Batman as a hero. Hero, Like what I liked about uh, Pattinson's performance of Bruce Wayne is that he's really ghoulish. He kind of, you know, uh, he looks like kind of husk with his flat hair and he almost hunches while he's playing Bruce Wayne. Uh, as a man who's been, you know, a recluse for years and doesn't want to be seen. Uh, I thought it was a very pleasing change of uh, tone to the kind of uh, millionaire, billionaire playboy, which I think these days just isn't a heroic idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as given uh, you know, people's, you know, opinions of uh, various billionaires. Um, so I, I, I enjoyed what it did with the Batman and I felt very satisfied and I enjoyed a lot of the action, um, but maybe half of the action, I would say. And uh, as an action film, it's got to have punchy bits. Uh, I, I, I was satisfied by it, I think. How about, how about uh, you guys? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of that. I agree about Pattinson. Uh, I think he's 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 great throughout. Like, the version of Batman I like. I mean, I like the Frank Miller run, or at least some of it, of Batman comics, because I like Batman when he is a creepy Mr. Weirdo, mm. essentially. Uh, and that's what this film is going for. And I think Pattinson's great casting for that because he can both lean into, you know, the moody, emo, teenager stuff, which obviously he's he's got form with. And, and I think it's interesting that this is a Batman who's he's only a couple of years into his career as Batman. He's still depicted as very mm. adolescent, you know, his, his mm. floppy ear and his, his eye makeup hunched over his journal, essentially. And I agree with you that the, um, that opening sequence where they introduce the Batman as a concept and show the criminals being afraid of him is possibly the highlight of the entire film. Yeah. And it's, and it's narrated, which is a really interesting choice, but it, that narration lets the film get to something that, it gets to Batman's inner monologue, which obviously you get through captions in the comics a lot of the time, but you don't tend to really get in the film so much. And I like the fact that it's not just his inner monologue. He's actually, it's what he's writing in his journal. So when he describes himself as a nocturnal animal in the monologue, mm. he's actually writing that and, and uh, underlining it three times in his in his journey, <laughs> <laughs> feeling ways about stuff and getting all, getting all moody. And... Um, it's very Rorschach. I think it's intentionally meant to kind of echo uh, Rorschach from Watchmen. Well, I, I mean, I feel I Rorschach is meant to echo Batman in, <laughs> yeah. in a lot, a lot of ways. <laughs> like Alan Moore was commenting on how, what was what, what would Batman be like if he was actually existed, and that's mm. Rorschach. And into a certain extent, is it Al Boy? Who's <laughs> the other guy? Is <laughs> is another reflection of Batman, um, you know, as well in in, in in those stories. But it's uh, I I don't fully buy the character arc they try to give Batman over the course of the movie. And like I do think the film is ultimately hopeful. Like it's it's trying to depict um p potential in Gotham's future by the election of a new mayor, by um the change in Batman. But the change in Batman isn't that he grows as a person or makes like a moral change in any sense it's more he makes like a branding change because the the combination <laughs> you, you're right that he doesn't stop the armed robbery at the beginning of the film but the culmination of that is that he beats up those guys in the train station and the person he's just rescued 
is as afraid of him as the people he's just beaten up. Mm. So the people he's helping are still afraid of him because the guy on the ground that he's just yeah. saved says, uh, please don't hurt me, you know, and then, you know, then we, we cut away and that's the kind of end of that segment versus obviously the end of the film where he is heroically leading people from the wreckage uh, and, and we'll, get, we'll get into the plot stuff there. But it doesn't feel like he's made any kind of like moral transition as the character over the course of the film he's just decided oh pr is really important and <laughs> i need i need to give people hope and so uh, i need to like be, stop referring to myself as vengeance mm. <laughs> every time i meet someone yeah, <laughs> essentially I, I, don't, I don't i kind of disagree i think i mean i agree that i think the the arc he goes on is perhaps a uh it, it's superficially presented, but I, I and I worry that um, a sequel isn't going to be able to continue that arc in a way which makes sense for him. I mean, he's not going to spend a, a sequel pulling people out of rubble and, and uh, you know, working in soup kitchens. Uh, <laughs> so I, I don't know where it can really go. But I, I think in terms of like uh, a moral change, I think he he, he gestures towards one. I think we'll we'll come to it. We'll come to it. I guess. <laughs> I suppose. I suppose the thing that I will say up front is that there is a part where he discusses. You know, he must become more, mm. um, and that's that's obviously like a. I don't know if that's an echo of a line from the comics. It's obviously an echo of a line from the Nolan films, uh, where Ra's al Ghul is is telling him that he needs to become larger in the minds of his uh, opponents. That he needs to become scarier, essentially. But you know, Robert Pattinson realizes in this film that he just has what being more means is being more than a tool for vengeance, but one of healing too. Hmm. And it's a sort—I of, feel like it's such a direct repudiation of some of the messaging from the Nolan films and obviously of the, the Frank Miller comics that it maybe felt weightier to me in this film than was perhaps even substantiated by the actual actual content of the film. But I do think there are a few moments where it, it does ring true, um, whether it. You know, uh, I mean, it sort of leaves it hanging about whether that will come to any kind of fruition. Um, so I guess we'll see. But I do really love that opening. That's it's such mm. a, a fantastic uh, atmospheric thing. It's interesting that he, <laughs> that weirdly, the the things he's describing don't really match what happens in it because he says you know uh he can't be everywhere so he has to choose his targets carefully but then you know in actuality he just turns out to be at the station where the <laughs> criminals <laughs> randomly alight and then and then he's like you know you know but i am the shadows uh <laughs> and they all fear me but then he comes out of the shadows and they're like who the fuck is this guy <laughs> <laughs> they had no idea anyway but uh you know it's it's still it's super powerful but actually that isn't the beginning of the film guys no mm. it's not the opening of the film i really like that the opening of the film is actually setting up the villain and uh qu with quite a a conscientious horror slash serial yeah. killer vibe i think mm. uh, again i think this the the introduction of the riddler is fantastic uh not only uh uh, so there's there's a couple of cool things in that opening sequence. I really like. It's just a, it's kind of a needless detail, but you see that the Riddler observing his uh, prey uh, through binoculars, and he's watching through a window as this sort of ninja uh, cartwheels mm. around. And then it's revealed that the ninja is actually very very small. It's a child, but you only realise that because of the, the contrast of scale when his dad comes in. And I I, I don't know why. I mean, it's, there's quite a lot of little kind of needlessly clever 
little devices in in the film like that, uh, which I, I think lend a sort of level of interest that um, it, it doesn't necessarily need. But I, I I felt kept my attention for the massive amount of time that the film takes. I think um, uh, uh, that scene is really important because I, it's the, the film like otherwise might invite you to think that the Riddler is right. Uh, yeah. And that uh, this mayor is just purely corrupt, and that's all he is, and that's all that kind of his whole existence. That you know, that, that he has to be deleted because of uh, what he is. Whereas um, him play with his kid, like he comes in and uh, his kid's dressed as a kind of samurai with a little sword, and he he falls down, plays dead. The kid comes back in, and they hug, and you're like, oh, that's, that's kind of sweet. Um, so when you know the, the following scene happens. Uh, he's not just a kind of a mayor with some corruption issues. <laughs> he's actually also a dad. He's also a, 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 mm. more of a person than you might uh, you might otherwise think. And uh, a lot of the problem I have with like some vigilante stuff is that it kind of invites you to actually say, "Oh yeah, no, he was right to kill him. He was corrupt." You know, and actually, oh yeah, I would follow him on Twitch <laughs> or whatever uh, <laughs> the, the film might want to say. Um, so I think that was actually a really important moment. It's also the beginning of drawing comparisons mm, or setting exactly. up the ability to draw comparisons between the Riddler and Batman yeah. because we see, as Marsh has just said, the Riddler observing the scene via binoculars and then that's mirrored later when Batman tracks down Selina Kyle mm. and, and yeah. we get a long scene of him across the street viewing her through binoculars and it's one of several ways in which the film is saying, hey, maybe maybe the heroic vigilante is also <laughs> somewhat problematic um, yeah and it's right i mean R- yeah. when uh, riddler and batman eventually had their confrontation and riddler's like but we're one and the same you know we're not so different you and i mm-hmm. in other words i mean he he's dead right and the fact that uh you know batman flips out <laughs> at that <laughs> just shows just how uh emotionally untethered he actually is um, yeah, I, like, I like the sort of like Riddler's project management he sort of sees batman as an sort of ally in his quest which is actually quite an interesting angle on the villain yeah um I, I enjoyed that. There is actually, um, uh, Celine and Kyle does say, we're not so different, you and I, which I think should, yeah. <laughs> there should be some sort of, it should not, should not happen in scripts. <laughs> I agree with that. Um, but the, like the, the comparison between the two, like I like the way that they allude to it throughout the film. Like there's another, another thing where I've just mentioned that um, Batman is writing in his journal at the beginning. And then later on, when they dis- discover mm. Riddler's apartment, he's also been writing these you know, moody screeds in all these notebooks and that sort of stuff. But these are things that we see and the Riddler does not see. Mm. Um, so, like, I don't wholly buy the idea that the Riddler thinks Batman is on his side. Like, the, like what has Batman done mm. other than one act towards the end of the film that the Riddler could possibly interpret as meaning that the Batman is on his side? Mm. Like, it, it doesn't wholly makes sense like batman is known throughout the city it's established in that opening montage as someone who beats up criminals and is working with the police like he just walks around in crime scenes and (laughs) enters the police precinct and like that's a known thing that he works with the police so like why does the riddler think and there are all there are all these sorts of things where i i love the film as a vibe (laughs) but i'm not convinced by it on the level of of plot like i think it's got loads of plot problems in its structure and as we get into like 
the construction of the mystery and whether that's satisfying. Yeah. I think, you know, I think there are loads of problems there. Well, let's let's stay with that vibe at the moment. I think uh, just talking about the the look and the feel of the film, it's uh, I really love the the texture of it. I mean, the, it's almost completely without color apart from umber <laughs> and occasionally red, uh, and everything else is just this greenish gray. I've I've seen it take um, flack for looking flat or or washed out or, or murky. Um, I didn't feel it felt flat at all. I really liked its murkiness. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, one of the things that I noticed uh, watching it a second time is that the characters are nearly, there's so many shots where the characters are barely lit in the foreground and the yeah. background is lighter than them. Not quite silhouette because they are perhaps lit by bounced light or rim lights. Uh, and then there's smoke and fog or rain filling the background. But it's, it's, you know, everything is, it's, I, I don't know, I found it very evocative. Um, I'm very, um, it feels a lot like uh, David Fincher's Seven. Yeah. Uh, and I think very intentionally, there's, yeah. there's a lot of um, Zodiac vibes to it as well, uh, obviously, in the, in the case of the Riddler. Um, but even in this, in, even in the way it's shot, uh, it, it feels very similar. The city has a similar kind of baroque, uh, ancient grandeur, which is just absolutely sodden and soaked and rotten through. It's noticeable in that that uh, the scene in which they introduce um, Batman beating up the people at the station, it's raining inside the station. <laughs> uh, it's every, everything is so wet. Uh, I, I, I just I think it looks fantastic. And the sound design is incredible as well. Yeah. Like, uh, there's a lot of great foley work. There's an amazing noise when Batman pulls a thing out of a tire, which you should <laughs> listen for if you ever watch it again. Uh, <laughs> and people are often like softly spoken. Um, yeah. And there's there's a sense of the size of the room in which they're talking quietly. It, it gives me, it reminds me of the sonic space of Blade Runner, strangely enough. And there are also visual kind of uh, references to Blade Runner uh, elsewhere. Um, not only in the in the in the rain, I guess, but uh, um, in Falcone's lair. Uh, at one point, it's it's it, it's sort of sideways lit from outside by this incredible sallow light, and it's it's definitely definitely very Blade Runner. But um, yeah, what did you guys think of the the way it looks? Yeah, I think it looks amazing. It's what it's maybe my favorite Gotham depicted. Mm. Like I, I do really like the mega gargoyles and theatricality <laughs> and staginess of Burton's Batman films. But this being a kind of mega New York, you know, I think one of the earlier short shots is of, it looks like Times Square, but yeah. with six times as many billboards and utterly rammed with traffic and people. And it's super claustrophobic, the entire thing. And I, I agree with what you're saying about the, the Foley work and audio generally, like, Tom, I think you mentioned that the, the introduction to Riddler is is serial killery. Mm. I mean, I think the introduction to Batman as well. Like, it's not just that the way he beats everyone up in the train station is the way he emerges from the shadows, and mm. you hear the clumping of his boots first. You hear him very slowly walk into scenes, and they repeat that again and again. Yeah, like he is he is almost like this. Um, Freddy Krueger like character who mm. walks places rather than runs and yet keeps up with everyone. Um, 
I know, yeah, it just it it looks stunning. I love how wet it is, and obviously, mm. and obviously, water plays a, a plays a bigger part later in the story as well. Mm. Um, it's, it's good, good damp, moist film. I I love um how the soundtrack uh the soundscape expands and contracts a lot. So, um, the, the, there are moments of silence where people are lo- are just allowed to be alone in a room, and it's just their voices, and then um. You, you could it goes outside and as you say it's like a soaking sodden place um and i, I just thought like a, a sound that i call like a hushed roar of just um rain collapsing onto buildings is a, it's such a beautiful sound that just uh it gives you that sense of space and being outside uh, and it's just full of little moments like that little kind of touches and changes in uh in intensity uh, and with this like really insistent soundtrack, uh, you know the the main theme, uh, which mm. is drawn from something in the way by Nirvana, is similar like the note relationships are the same. Um, it's just a kind of pomp, like really pompous, massive version of it, um, and that is like super effective. And I, just, I felt my heart rate just increasing <laughs> watching it when when uh, it chooses to crescendo. It's like oh my god, this is, something's really happening. It's like the Batmobile chase and and in some of the fight scenes. Uh, I've really sort of on a sort of second or third watch. I still got that uh, super effective. It's, it's, it, I think aesthetically, it's a great film. It's got amazing set design as well. Like mm. I love um, Bruce Wayne's house where he yes. seems to live in like a gothic clock tower it's like or something. Gust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, exactly. Awesome. Yeah, and stuff like the 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 funeral for the mayor that they go to which yeah. seems to take place at city hall like that's the building that they pull up outside but when they go inside it's this big gothic cathedral like building mm. uh, i'm not sure what's going on there but it looks incredible i, I love that well i think it's sometimes like especially it doesn't make any sense so for example the iceberg lounge is like five different entirely different places so <laughs> I, I think um uh as Bruce Wayne, Bruce Wayne goes to visit uh, Falcone to learn, you know, about his father and his relationship with Falcone. Um, and he goes into the Iceberg Lounge to get there. But when he goes into Falcone's office, it's like an entire, like it's a completely different universe. It's like, that's not inside a club. Uh, it does that a lot. But I think that's the sort of thing that while you're watching it in the cinema, you don't really clock necessarily, um, at least not consciously. Uh, whereas on rewatch, it's like, what? It's kind of yeah. more puzzling. Um, so there are a few other. there are a few parts of the film where I don't think that connective tissue really uh, really works. Mm. But uh, in 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 those scenes, I absolutely bought it. <laughs> but now you mention it, it doesn't <laughs> make really any weird. sense. <laughs> so the, the office, uh, Falco's office, is like a hundred feet off the ground, and there's a giant window showing a street underneath. It's like, isn't this supposed to be deep inside a nightclub? <laughs> like, uh, it, yeah, it, it's it's the sort of thing you kind of clock on the second or third watch. It's not really something that uh, caused any issues for me, like watching the film initially. Uh, but it, there are some sort of weird logic problems with the film. Definitely. Should we move on to uh, Batman entering the scene of the crime? Because I wanted to, <laughs> I mean, are you convinced by, uh, as convinced by Batman as a detective as you are uh, as, uh, you know, a gothy borderline suicidal nutcase? <laughs> Look, he solves those riddles so fast. He must be the best <laughs> detective in the world. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's very good at yeah, little wordplay puzzles. <laughs> He's great at Wordle. At, yeah, he'd be good at Wordle. Um, I think on the evidence of this film, he's a mega shit detective. <laughs> it's awful. Uh, and he accomplishes almost nothing. And uh, Selina is a much better detective than he is throughout. But I do like that version of Batman. Like, that's the other mm, part of yeah. Batman I like. Like, I want him to be a 
creepy psychosexual weirdo but then i also want him to be like a hard-boiled detective Mm. like that's the kind of uh, i like mickey spillane and mike hammer detective novels and that sort of stuff um which is from a similar era as the original batman comics and um you know I, i i want him to be the world's greatest detective and there's something really exciting about the fact that this is operating for the most part on the scale of something like seven or zodiac like it is a series of murders that batman is investigating and there's a human frailty to batman throughout um uh, that's not present in any of the other recent batman films or maybe any batman film ever for that matter and the tools that with a couple of exceptions the tools that he's using to investigate are mundane you know he's got his magic eye eyeball contact lens recording device thing um and the rest of the time he's just talking to people and reading things and going to crime scenes and i mean just that itself like it's really exciting that at the beginning um batman walking through a crowd of police officers Mm. um to a crime scene that immediately was like oh i I haven't seen this before. <laughs> like, when was the last time that this took place in a, a, yeah. a film version of version of Batman that he was just going to a crime scene and other people were just, you know, they didn't like it, but they kind of got used to it or like it was a thing that had happened before. There's a real vibe of that when 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 Batman is entering the scene for the first time, he walks down this corridor which is lined with cops. It's just it's very reminiscent of like the goth kid walking down to the new <laughs> school he's just arrived at. <laughs> I, I think that it's that's. It's got to be intentional. It's, yeah, it's, it's it's really interesting. Uh, I think I think they manage this this weird position for Batman, where he is obviously incredibly uh, a powerful physical presence and could turn any of those cops into blancmange with a, a single <laughs> you know blow. But then he there is also a sort of kind of social nervousness to him, which is uh, which is sort of strangely contradictory. Um, but it, it does it, it does work. He, he seems both kind of imposing, but also desperately insecure, which is exactly, I think, the vibe they were going I, I think it's because he never directly addresses anyone he doesn't really trust. So he'll, mm. he'll address Gordon, but when other people around him talk about why the hell is this freak here, he just literally is, stands stationary as a statue. Like he, he will not look at them or talk to them. And that is kind of, that's the energy, isn't it? That, that's the social kind of... Uh, awkwardness but also he is supposed to be this kind of gothy loner as well so it plays into that um i i, I do enjoy the sort of like bromance between him and um uh, gordon uh just the, the total trust gordon has in him <laughs> for some reason i know yeah. like he's been batman for two years so they've obviously built a relationship and also i'm so glad the film doesn't you know spend loads of time on building up why that is like we don't need to know but mm. Uh, is, is the fact that Gordon is just like I trust you implicitly and I completely rely on you to do the right thing no matter what is kind of bonkers if you think about it <laughs> yeah how, just just staying with that for a second how do you how readable do you think this film would be for somebody who hasn't uh, encountered Batman before obviously mm. the filmmakers are assuming that that audience is a very small one but it is interesting that they've chosen to just skip over any kind of origin story um and sort of not even really explain uh, Batman's existence at all I'm glad for it. I mean, yeah, I'm very glad of it. But I do feel like that opening montage does a lot of work yeah. to to set up, like not not the not the Riddler, but the bit after that. Yeah, um, it's you know it introduces 
Gotham. It introduces the problems of the city riddled with crime. It, it, it introduces Batman conceptually. It introduces him as a person. You get an immediate vibe that vibe that he's he's messed up. <laughs> so, you know, I th- I think that does enough to establish a universe that you sort of can roll with it. Probably even if you've somehow managed to avoid all Batman stuff forever. Don't know. Do you guys disagree with that? No, I think I, I, I think that's right. But I, I find it hard to judge uh, what somebody who doesn't know what I know about Batman would know from this film. Mm. Um, but I, I do think it does enough. I mean, I, I'm I'm glad that we've sort of reached a level of sort of uh, literacy with at least comic book properties now that they don't have to constantly apologize uh, for themselves mm. as they arrive, which I felt has been the case. And it's still the case with video games when they broach like mainstream uh, audiences. Um, but it's it's such a relief <laughs> to fill of to watch this film and just skip all that stuff. I think it's really nice. I wonder, well, if, the, I wonder if this sort of um, the father son mirroring um, of the the mayor and his son and the fact that the, the son was kind of found the body and that kind of stuff. Mm. I wonder how that would land for new people. But then it does he does go into it later and he discusses it explicitly with Alfred. And um, uh, oh, by the way, Alfred does most of his detecting for him as well in this film. <laughs> oh, yeah. Which is sort of does his homework for him, uh, which is quite a weird energy. Uh, but yes, uh, I think I think uh, characters like Catwoman more confusing than any other character. It's like a, a character's been introduced uh, in this bar, and then he spies on her in a really creepy way, and then she just changes into a, a cat suit and somersaults off a building. Like if you didn't know anything about the Batman universe um, or what the significance of having lots of cats is, I, that must been quite weird <laughs> just baffling how do you guys feel about the, the presentation of, of the police in general in these films because I, I i think a lot of uh certainly the recent spider-man games for example and uh other comic book properties show this kind of cozy relationship with cops which is sometimes disquieting i mean it's kind of the tradition in batman stories that the police are almost entirely corrupt. Like I don't, it's it's never valorizing of police really. Mm. Like Commissioner Gordon is usually the one straight cop, um, and even he is often seen like turning a blind eye to the corruption all around him. Like that's true of um, Gary Oldman's Gordon in Batman Begins. Like he knows his partner in that the beginning of that film is taking bribes, but he's no rat, so he won't say anything about it. Um, so and and that that holds true across a lot of Batman. Um, and I'm okay with that. I guess <laughs> you know, like I would rather that than the. Some t- the thing you sometimes get with Spider-Man where he's, or Superman for that matter, where sometimes they're like honor honorary members of the local police force. Yeah, I think it, I agree. I, I, the cynicism, I think there's a degree of cynicism towards the police that is um, that avoids it from being too cloying. Um, but at the same time, the police are kind of like weather in this film. They're just... <laughs> around and they club together and sometimes they run into a room and run out of a room uh, <laughs> and it's like don't you guys have other things to be doing like why are 40 people in this small room with Batman <laughs> uh, it's, it's, there's a lot of kind of odd moments the police are just sort of like there when they need to be sometimes it rains police sometimes they're not, <laughs> uh, not useful to the plot so they're just not there 
Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I didn't find it problematic or anything like that. Uh, I don't think I don't have any problems with the way it was presented. I think they're just sort of roommate a lot of the time, which is kind of uh, it happens. Like I'd rather that they didn't spend any time time on it in a very long film. I do, I do love the escape from the police precinct, <laughs> yeah. where so yeah. everyone starts chasing after him and all the police officers, just hundreds of them, start going, rubber, 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 <laughs> yeah, rubber, yeah, rubber, yeah. rubber, rubber. They're all just yelling constantly. <laughs> like, yeah. why? Everyone else can see Batman as well. You don't need to constantly <laughs> yell, there he is. And also there's a point where like Batman is going to the roof to escape. He fires his grappling hook or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's getting chased on a bu- by a bunch of cops on the ground floor. And he shoots his grappling hook up. And as he zooms up six floors, the camera pans <laughs> up with him. And another door on the sixth floor bursts open. And there's 30 cops there. <laughs> like, how did they know that Batman on the ground floor was escaping and that he just punched Gordon in the face? Like, how, how or did they run up the stairs as fast as Batman could go up with this? Like, like you say, they are like weather or they're like, they're being spawned in. Mm, there, yeah. is an en- there is an enemy spawner and I, <laughs> just round the corner out of sight. And they're just being spewed out. There's a sort of plot driven hive mind behind their activity that yeah. makes them just. Uh, also, a lot of the like secretary characters, uh, all the secretary men in the film are kind of the same character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they all talk, they have the same demeanor, they talk in the same way, they have the same views. <laughs> like, <laughs> there's a really, a lot of, there are a lot of sort of template people in the background in this film. And uh, maybe that's intentional to not distract from the Batman. Uh, but it, it's kind of weirdly noticeable once, once you actually, you know, think that. Yeah, it's, it's Gordon's former partner, Pete, who mm. is like, mm. Uh, what what you doing getting a Batman in here? Get him out of here! And then he gets eaten to death by rats. And then so they just introduce another bearded cop to be like, "What are you doing, Gordon? Why is a Batman here at the crime scene?" Like it's just why? Like they just why did they all have mustaches? I've never <laughs> seen so many mustaches in a film. Uh, just... <laughs> Arbitrary point. Although that guy does the second the second piece does have uh, that weird voice because he is that. Uh... Mm. That guy from oh, Chernobyl. Oh, he's, he's awesome. He? Also, Chernobyl is awesome. a very strange voice. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to put your neck on the line for him, Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, feel he, like the, mus- the mustaches are part of the aesthetic. They're part of the mm. 70s sort of Zodiac Killer vibe. Well, yeah, it's, like it's clearly intentional, one. right? Yeah. Everyone's got one. What do you guys make of the whole clues, the Riddler's clues, starting with the <laughs> thumb drive? Uh, oh, yeah. Right. I, I think I feel like this part of the film, which is so essential, it was also probably the weakest. Like I was never really invested in any of the riddles as puzzles because they're either instantly solved by Batman or they become meaningless <laughs> over time. Mm. Uh, I, I, I hated the overproduced greeting cards, which would have been impossible yeah. to anybody who isn't a motion graphics right, expert, make, yeah. you know, a, a, sorry, a graphic design expert. Uh, and then the video, <laughs> which, he, which he produces, which again uh, would be a challenge to a studio producing that video. Um, but in general, I didn't feel like the mysteries really held together. Like I didn't, I didn't see a, a purpose to it uh, as they unfolded. This is the problem I have with the film's plot: is that it is a mystery with a wholly uninteresting mystery. Like the best mystery stories, you get clues, you have red herrings, and each new piece of information you get, um, it, you know, is surprising. It recontextualizes previous bits of information. And that just doesn't happen here at all. Like the clues they get and the revelations are just, Mm. 
we discovered A, then we discovered B, then we discovered C, then we discovered D. And a lot of it is of no consequence. Like B doesn't even a lot of the time lead to C. They just kind of stumble across things. And like even the thumb drive thing, for example, like they, 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 they get a cipher and it spells out the word drive. And so they go and check the guy who got murdered's garage. And it's like, didn't the police search the house in the first place mm. after he was brutally killed inside the building? They didn't think to like, I don't know, check the other rooms of the house to find them, you know, a blood soaked pair of secateurs or whatever it is stuck inside. A, I don't know. Like none of that wasn't satisfying or exciting. And then so many of the revelations and the discoveries are just carried out by other people. And I don't mind so much when it's Alfred doing Batman's homework, but in some instances, like the revelation about the orphanage, for example, mm. and Thomas Wayne's relevance to the, the, the entire plot of the film and the personal significance for Batman is delivered by one of Riddler's Adobe After Effects lore explainers. <laughs> like it's not, it's not, it's not discovered as a consequence of um, yeah. Batman going to the orphanage and exploring these clues. Yeah. It's literally he just it is broadcast on television by the villain, uh, and there's so much of it like that. Like when. And and I, I you know I don't know if I'm skipping ahead here, doing I'm talking about this before we get to it, but like the the ultimate revelation about Falcone at the end is discovered by Catwoman, for example. Like throughout this film, it feels <laughs> yeah. to me like Catwoman is maybe the actual protagonist <laughs> who is off camera being much more proactive, and uh, when Batman arrives at places, Catwoman's already there, and she's the one that you know, solves a bunch of the problems in the actual film. Um, and I don't mind, you know, a plot in which, you know, Batman is not all powering. He's not the hero. He doesn't have to solve everything. But if you're going to spend this long on a mystery, it's got to be an interesting mystery with, you know, twists, revelations, yeah. and, you know, a plot that seems to follow from one scene to another. I think my main problem with it, I mean, we are skipping ahead here, but why not? Uh, is that there? there is a twist, which is that, um, you know, it's revealed uh, by the Riddler that Thomas Wayne ordered a reporter to be killed. Hmm. Um, and then literally in the next scene, that is dispelled, you know. Or maybe not the next scene, because he because go, uh, Batman goes to confront Falcone. Uh, he, Bruce Wayne rather goes to confront Falcone. He yeah. confirms this. Then he talks to Alfred, and it's instantly dispelled. And it's just like, well, that twist didn't really need to happen. <laughs> you know, this film is three hours long, so let's just let's just cut that part out. Mm. Uh, and, and then ultimately, all of this is building towards the revelation that Falcone, a reputed mob boss, is a mob boss. <laughs> I'm like, I'm just, I'm like, so much of it is yes. that. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, uh, why? Why is the, why is it a surprise that the the, the corrupt police are working for the mob boss? Yeah, That's literally the most <laughs> obvious thing. It, it, the, the trouble is, um, I, I think we'll get onto the penguin chase sequence, which is uh, I actually really enjoyed the sequence, but um, I found it hilarious. But uh, all all the re revelations are just like a man you've never heard of is corrupt, and. As an audience viewer, that means nothing. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Thomas Wayne is Bruce Wayne's father, so that might mean something. But the rest of it is just like an, a, a, a new arbitrary name did a thing t twenty yeah. years ago. <laughs> I was like, what? I, don't know. I, I think don't if, care. That, if, if that if that's if from the point at which uh, Bruce Wayne discovers 
uh, that his father was corrupt and that jeopardizes his entire understanding of the legacy of the yeah. Waynes and his it, a pursuit of justice. If that had lasted for an act rather than literally 15 <laughs> minutes, minutes or whatever, yeah, I think that would have been a successful twist. But because it is just instantly discarded, it, it becomes meaningless. And I think it's discarded in order to give that moment with Alfred uh, some greater impact because during that scene... Mm. Uh, Bruce Wayne realizes, oh, but I don't want to go through it again because it, actually it's not justice that's most important. It's preserving the people you love sort of thing. Um, yeah. But I, I think just it, it feels a little unearned because Alfred is is just feels like this sort of expository, uh, mushy, weak link <laughs> in, yeah. a, in yeah. a very long film. Um, I, I don't really care about his fresh berries or his time in the circus. <laughs> that, that line with the fresh berries is so such a weird... Why would you? Why would you keep that in? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I. So I, I know, think I like Andy Circus as as Alfred. Yeah, I just don't think yeah. it, it, it felt right in the film. It's the most hackneyed, trite sort of emotional beat, and I, I feel mm. like that a lot of the scenes with Alfred are like that. Like even the first scene with Alfred, where he comes down um, to the basement or whatever to to see his moody adopted teenager you know, Batman, like Alfred is, is worried about him and, and expresses some concern. And Batman says, just stop it, Alfred. You're not my father. Mm. And it's like, you know, it's like the teenager saying, you're not my real dad. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I don't fully, cause it's so cliche. I don't buy into the emotional reality of those scenes, but to come to the, the, the Falcone revelation, um, I, I felt like it was ambiguous. Like there's a mirrored line where I think, Falcone says that Maroni was the one that killed Thomas Wayne. Yeah. And Batman repeats the information back to him and Falcone says something like the, you know, says something like, do I know it for sure? No, but, you know, it makes sense to me. And then basically Alfred says the same thing. You know, Alfred implies that Falcone was the one that murdered him. And Alfred says, well, do I know it? Am I 100% sure? No, mm. of course, I write my brain. And so like, it's, it feels like it's designed to be ambiguous, but his ambiguity has no bearing on Batman's actions after that point, as far as I can tell. And like, and, and so because it has, seems to have no personal significance and really no plot significance, it feels like it's only relevant relevance is like, like Thomas Wayne's reputation is the only stakes in, in, in that yeah. whole section. And it's like, well, I don't care about Thomas Wayne's reputation. Thomas Wayne's purpose is to be dead as motivation <laughs> for Batman. Uh, I don't care whether he was corrupt or not, unless mm. that, as you say, Marsh, affects Batman's actions in some way. And it doesn't really align for me with Batman's growth of character. Like, like, Alfred almost being killed does. Like I understand that that's part of his motivation to be less of a dick. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like the the ambiguity over who killed Thomas Wayne. Yeah, I I think they preserve that very intentionally because it's a kind of a hallmark of Batman that he uh, at times projects the identity of whichever villain he's currently fighting onto onto the unknown killer of his father. Um, I mean, but I don't know that it serves the plot in this film. Yeah, it's the Uncle to Ben thing. Do that. 
I have, I mean, my take is that they preserve the ambiguity of it because they want to do a bunch of tie-in TV series telling mm. the prequel story. And like, that's why you've got John Turturro playing Falcone. Yeah. Yeah. That's why you've got Peter Sarsgaard playing the district attorney. That's, you know, and they've already announced like a Penguin series, um, which is, you know, set within this universe with Colin Farrell playing the role in the in the, in the the TV series. And so I think they're, it feels like that's a thing that there's going to be like a, prestige eight episode crime drama about yeah. you know which will reveal the truth of the thomas wayne mystery mm. should we talk about penguin's club scene yeah uh, sure because uh, i i think uh, the introduction of penguin is great i think this is this is one of my favorite scenes in the film mm. uh after there's a sort of like that i like the way that batman enters the club and the way that's echoed throughout the film i think that's very yeah. funny mm-hmm. um but then after he gets in that sort of long shot of that ratcheting, desperate chaos uh, <laughs> that he uh, pursues, which seems to have no real logical outcome for Batman than death. Like, I mean, that's the way it's going. He will die in that scene up until the point where Penguin intervenes. And you sort of, and I think it's just, I think it's superb because you not only get a sense of Batman as, a, as just a terrific fighter, mm. but also he is one who is plowing mindlessly into suicidal odds. And like he, he can take a hit, and he certainly takes a large number of them, but uh, you know, this, it, it still underscores that he is very vulnerable, uh, mental and mentally and physically. Uh, I think it's quite an achievement to have uh, a, a fight scene in which he mashes like a dozen guys, and for him to still feel like he could be murdered at any point. I love. It makes me like Penguin as well. Like the fact that he just walks up to Batman in the middle of the <laughs> yeah. fight and is like, you're looking for me, sweetheart. <laughs> you know, uh, is immediately like, oh, cool. Like he's, he's, he's ballsy and he's kind of cheeky <laughs> in the way he introduces himself to Batman, even as Batman is beating up all his goons. Um, and so like immediately I'm like, cool. I want to see, the, see these guys interact yeah. in the next scene. And I think, you know, I love Penguin throughout the film. Colin yeah. Farrell's performance so good, is yeah. incredible. And obviously the makeup, and like, I didn't realize it was Colin Farrell. I had no, no idea he was in like this like, film. Hmm. And I found out like two hours after I got home when I was looking up the film on the internet and was like, what? That was Colin Farrell? I had no yeah. idea whatsoever. So the makeup is obviously incredible. But even the makeup aside, I think Farrell's performance is really hmm. good. Like he, he creates... In quite a few scenes, a really interesting character with a lot of seeming depth. Fat, evil Robert De Niro. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, that's one way to <laughs> boil it down. No, you know I, how, like, in a comedy duo, there's a straight man and the person who does all the jokes. Like, and um, the Penguin is for me in this film the person who sort of calls everything out a little bit, like calls mm-hmm. out how silly things are. Um, and so uh, after the chase sequence, when they pin him against a wall, he just calls about as being just ridiculous cops. Like obviously, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. and that is, I think really, really, I love that note of humor. Like, uh, and he's like that, like throughout. And, uh, but it's also like, um, is uh, I've still found this scene between Batman and him tense because I didn't know if Batman was just going to mess him up <laughs> at any given moment. Like if he was, if he, and if the penguin annoyed the Batman, Batman would actually sort of really, really hurt him a lot. And I didn't want that to happen. And uh, that's a weird <laughs> emotional reaction to have to like a villain. But then I think I mean that's that's why the depiction of Batman is so good. Like they create mm. these scenarios where you 
you're worried about Batman being the <laughs> the one that's going to beat someone up, essentially. Like he's the one with the with the seeming physical power in mm. most of the situation he's in. Yeah. And yeah, I love I love the where he sarcastically refers to Batman and Gordon as the world's greatest detectives. Like he sarcastically <laughs> yeah. throws Batman's tagline. <laughs> back back at him. Yeah, it's yeah. Like a... I do think that this film, uh, probably not aided by Nolan's uh, run at Batman and comic books in general, have an obsession with scarred faces, which is now getting out of control. <laughs> like, <laughs> Two-Face is the character with the scarred face. But yeah. this film had scars to both Penguin and the Joker. <laughs> and, like, those those are characters that are not canonically scarred. I do think that they need to just stop relying on, like, uh, physical deformity to, to insinuate evil. Uh, it's yeah. just uh, a little thing too much. Uh, if anyone wants to listen to our, like, Bond podcast... That's the thing that like, we touched on okay. there with a lot of like, you know, traditional Bond villains are actually defined by their disfigurements and things like that. And, you know, yeah, it's the kind of thing that it's just not necessary. <laughs> do you want to talk about Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman? How do you guys feel about Catwoman in this film? I mean, I think she's great. And like I said before, I think she's sort of the protagonist of the movie. Um like she's she's not a damsel i don't think at all like there are a couple of moments where she, where she's saved by batman but she likewise saves batman she has her own personal stakes in the story which she pursues often off camera um the resolution of that story is you know very much her own she she discovers her dead friend she goes and um finds her killer she's the one that uncovers falcone's involvement with the da um and you know seemingly is the person who shares that with if not the public then at least the police and batman who then share it with the public um yeah and i like the the romance essentially like for all that batman is a a creepy weirdo in this (laughs) like the other part of it is this matinee idol romance where he's posing with Catwoman in front of the sunset on top of buildings and stuff like that and I I do like the relationship they form over the course of the film and also the, the you know Tom you touched on the fact that they don't really set up Catwoman as a concept um but she's surrounded by lots of cats and she does, <laughs> you know, drink milk in the middle of the scenes. Yeah, yeah. My fi- my favorite little nod, like little nod. I don't know if a nod is the right word is where they're, they're getting on their bikes at the very end of the film. And like Catwoman is leaving town and she's got a motorbike and she's loading a cat into like yeah. the trunk of her motorbike. Yeah. I saw that on the, the, the second turn uh, the, the second viewing. I was like, but she chose only one. She had like three or four cats. <laughs> yeah. At least. Yeah. I think, she, I, I think she's superb. I think uh, Kravitz is, is, is really good. Uh, yeah. I think like as a physical performance, I think it's really interesting as well. Like incredibly kind of staccato movements that feel mm. very purposeful. Uh, I, I really like that. But I also think, you know, just she, she's a good fall for Batman. I think she is. I, I think in her relationship with Batman, you do see Batman's moral growth because she challenges his sort of monomaniacal focus on the case because he's obsessed with you know his his own investigation and he just doesn't have any compassion for 
the actual victims <laughs> that are being mm. embroiled by this. And I think her uh, disgust at that actually uh, is the thing that makes him change his mind. Um, and I think that's that's cool. I also like the fact that she's really cool and Bats is a total <laughs> dork and he doesn't, he doesn't <laughs> yeah. even know about the secret club in the club. <laughs> and she sort of rolls her eyes. What a lamer. <laughs> I do like that scene in the club where... Um... Catwoman goes in and meets the district attorney. There's a lot of, mm. um, I think it's a good acting performance from Zoe Kravitz that she's sort of switching between disdainful mockery of Batman in her earpiece to performative flattery with the district attorney to emotionally pursuing, you know, information about her dead friend. And there's there's tension there where she's, you know, confronted by Penguin, first of all, and then Falcone. Like there's a lot going on over the course of three minutes in that one scene. And, yeah. and she performs it well and there's a lot there's it's it's tense as well, just that she's going into the belly of the beast. Whoa. Batman is ineffectually badgering her in her ear, like the big lame that she is, as you say. <laughs> Sorry, Tom, go on. Oh, I was going to say, actually, I think that it, um, her performance is fantastic, but um, the character itself is still a bit too close to just being a, sort of an emotional prop for Batman's growth. And there are kind of allusions to the fact that she's doing stuff in the background. But, um, but I didn't, I felt like, you know, when she kisses him, I felt like that came out of nowhere and made no sense. Um, I and yeah, I just felt like it was just uh, kind of glorifying Batman in a way that wasn't earned, uh, even though they'd laid a lot of the groundwork. But even in so, in the same in that sunset scene, uh, he basically implies that she might have slept with people to get close to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and she oh really? I didn't. Pretty, I didn't. Uh, I didn't get the the sexual connotations of that. I think I thought he was just saying that essentially he got she got uh, her friend killed in pursuit of uh, uh, the uh, big score. I thought it was like you know what price did you pay to get close to these people? And it's sort of too for me that was like a bit too open. It's like she, she shuts him down, which is great, but at the same time I think there was just kind of a, a very strange energy in that scene, and for her to sort of then kiss him at the end was really weird to me i thought i it didn't land at all for me um and i think like, as, as great as performance was i think catwoman is basically was too much of a prop in this film you know she is portrayed yeah. as being awesome and a good fighter um she doesn't i don't think she ever wins a fight in the film <laughs> apart from a, a, a guy that she beats up in a car park before the batmobile chase sequence uh she does something in the background and she's obviously incredibly good at what she does but also there's, you know, uh, the plot point with the woman that who just vanished and ended up dead. It was kind of like a... I think th- this film has... was kind of really bad for female characters. <laughs> I, I don't think it did a good job at all of presenting strong female characters. Even, even, even the alternative mayor, of course, is a, a good character. But I, I think the film has a problem with that, I would say. I feel like it strays close to that to me, but... but I, I, I disagree, I guess, overall about Catwoman. Like, um, I think she does win fights throughout. And like that scene in the car park, you know, Batman and Gordon turn up to investigate and Catwoman arrives of her own accord, having found it via her own investigation. (laughs) Then she beats up two guys and then she discovers the body of her dead friend. So like she's pursuing her own investigation for her own reasons, completely separate from batman mm. so like i don't necessarily need 
her to win every fight or to, you know, tell Batman to get stuffed, <laughs> you know, because he is a big lame-o. You know, I think, I, I, mean, I, I think partly the romance with Batman works for me because I think from the off, although he is dismissive of her in many ways and quite scornful of her in many ways, he also does, I think, in part show concern for her. And he is Robert Pattinson, the hottest man in the world. <laughs> and I think that buys you a certain amount of forgiveness on some of that stuff. But just the fact that she's pursuing her own story, she has her own stakes. And yes, those stakes are the death of another woman, which is unfortunate. But there are a lot of people who get killed <laughs> in this film. And that Catwoman pursues that doggedly of her own accord, yeah. with, mostly without Batman's help, and then mostly solves it. You know, like she, she, once after she's found the body, she does then go get the cop, partly responsible, beat him up, tie him up, and catch him. We don't see that, but she's obviously won fights and done a bunch of stuff without Batman to get to that point. And like I said before, she does get the information about Falcone that sort of leads to his arrest. And, you know, oh. it does the thing that Batman completely fails to do the investigation that he and Gordon have just spent like the last <laughs> the hour and a half of the film on, yeah, <laughs> is actually cracked open by Catwoman. And then when she goes and confronts Falcone, she gets the drop on him. She is only sort of screwed over by a stupid Batman turning off the electricity and making everything go dark. And then in the ensuing fight, she does beat up those guys. And uh, I think she gets Batman's help at one point when Falcone gets the better of her. But up until that point, she beats up a bunch of goons. Yeah, I think... So, I, so it's, yeah. I think, yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, I, and I then think, she rescues him at the end as well when the incels, are, the incel snipers, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Batman is hanging from the rafters or whatever. It's Catwoman that goes up and, you know... Beats up the last guy or whatever and, and rescues Batman. And then he saves her in turn, but she saves him first. Yeah, maybe I, I think I'm perhaps like reacting more a bit too emotionally to the fact that he sort of uses her eyes and then sends her into a club yeah. to get hit on by men. That's super, that felt super weird to but me. Like. But yeah, yeah, but I mean, I think it's that's sort of highlighted because there's the, that moment where um, I think she expresses some sort of vulnerability and he says, look at me. And then yeah, he sort of yeah. takes her face in his hand and it's it's like he's going to reassure her. But instead, he's just checking that her contact <laughs> yeah. lenses work. Yeah. And that, that is purposeful because mm, yeah. Batman's arc is that he, he lacks that compassion at this point because he's so uh, in pursuit of his own agenda, his own vengeful agenda, that he doesn't see the harm being done to the little people, you know, in inverted comments. But I think that's what changes across the course of the film, at least nominally. I don't know if it really sells it, but I, I think that's the point of it. I think it's intentional that he's callous at that point. And, yeah, absolutely. And you're not meant to think that's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, think. sure. Yeah, I think that's part of Batman being depicted as the creepy weirdo throughout. Mm. And I, I would agree that I think in most of these films, yeah, like they wouldn't have had any of the personal stakes for Catwoman involving her mother, involving her friend or any of that stuff. Um, and they would have just had her be the prop for his emotional development from t treating her very poorly to treating her slightly less poorly at the end of the film. Mm. But because she seems to have her own heroic journey and narrative arcs um, separate from that, that we see at certain points and it intersects and, and some of it, like I say, happens off camera because of that. Um, I, it feels to me like it's, well, Batman is the creepy weirdo, not the film yeah. or the filmmakers. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, cause I, um, I could see like a lot of parallels between this film and Seven for sure, but also this film and Taxi Driver. And uh, Taxi Driver is also framed by a written account of the internal monologue of Travis mm. Bickle, um, who and becomes a vigilante and is eventually like celebrated for being one, but it's actually just um, a journey of like the, a, a, a person being poisoned by his own obsessions with with corruption and, and the cesspit of the city he lives in um and that is kind of like interesting to what extent are you supposed to go along with the character monologue and to what extent are you supposed to reject it uh and especially i think the taxi driver works because he's travis pickle is not an established superhero uh batman is like a massively established superhero and while he's, you know, his morality has been questioned in lots of different ways through like, Miller's comics and things like that, uh, I still worry that the hero archetype invites people to think that he's cool mm. when actually a lot of the things he's doing, super not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do think the film struggles with that. I do think the film struggles with depicting Batman as the heroic protagonist of a comic book movie at the mm. same time as trying to develop a kind of character arc and and depict the things that are troubling about that mindset. Um, you know, it does, t- it t- obviously it ties in with the incels and it ties in with yeah. Riddler and all this sort of stuff throughout. Um, but with Batman as a character, I think that's one of the flaws of the film. Yeah, it's it's difficult because um, I don't see any way the film could get around that really because they can't help that everyone knows that Batman is a hero. So how do you do a complex kind of character assessment of Batman as a troubled person, a, a troubled, you know, uh, individual in that context? And like, I think I think the film, I don't think it's, the film's terrible bad on this point. I just it's an interesting sort of point of the character really. I think it's part for me of them not selling that emotional arc strongly enough. Like mm. they depict him visually and aesthetically like a crazed serial killer stomping into scenes, but then they still have, and it's designed as a joke and it's quite a funny line where, you know, he and Gordon arrive at the orphanage and Gordon gets his gun out and Batman says, no guns. And Gordon <laughs> says, Hey man, that's your thing. And it's like, well, that's quite a funny line. So fair enough. But like Batman as a as a vigilante who doesn't like guns doesn't really track for me with mm. everything else about him, where he cares not about victims, where he's he refers to himself as vengeance, where he's completely committed to just beating the pulp out of everyone. The fact that he's has this moral line where no, but I won't use guns, but that's sort of a, a heroic stance that the film sort of suggests that he's not heroic at the point at which he says that. Mm. And so like, there are these like internal inconsistencies with the character about, you know, the tropes of what you know about Batman and also how the film is trying to depict him and what change it's trying to depict in him. And I would have almost preferred it had gone further in making him explicitly unheroic during, you know, the first 15 hours of the fucking film <laughs> before <laughs> before the point at which you know he he turns and develops like i might have bought it more if it didn't if it felt more consistent yeah i think it's it's not the film's fault really because i think it's um mired in the context of superhero films in general in that you know there's so so many of them have been released by marvel <laughs> in the last sort of few years the idea the idea is ultimately that tony stark can get drunk and make a fool of himself but he's ultimately doing great guys like superhero archetype 
it's hard to not map that onto other superheroes and it's like it's not the film's fault at all it's just like the context of the things um perhaps you know i think you can't escape from would you like to tick off uh, a couple of other cast members yeah sure what do you make of uh john tuturo as carmine falcone i think personally miscast hmm i've really enjoyed like john tuturo's like the coen brothers have had him in their films loads and loads um i did find him suitably a little bit sinister i wonder why why do you think he's miscast I don't think his character exists at the kind of register that would be required to be the arch villain of this film. Hmm. Is my main problem with him. Is that because, because actually, his, his performance isn't like terribly, you know, exaggerated. Like he's actually just very quietly talks to people. That's his whole, uh, all of his interactions. Is it because of that that sort of presentation, or is it because you think that? Uh, or perhaps the fact that he's just wearing shades doors all the time for reasons I don't understand. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a, a culmination of different things, but I also just don't think uh, like physically he has uh, enough of, he doesn't carry himself with enough of a, a sense of threat. And I, I guess that is intentionally downplayed. But if you compare that to something like Vincent D'Onofrio's performance as Kingpin, mm, which is oh, also, yeah. uh, you know, uh, a very quiet performance a lot of the time but is uh resonant with menace mm, yeah <laughs> i feel like john Turturro is just you know your, your uncle <laughs> he's just your uncle <laughs> but i think that's the kind of uh that's the sort of crime cesspit vibe and that they're going for isn't it is that a, a normal guy walking past down the street has in like could be a crime boss maybe that's what they're going for yeah, mm. yeah. I don't know. I've been in the film in which the, you know you, you've got a literal you know super villains. <laughs> it yeah, feels a little bit. Uh, he doesn't quite quite manage to to carry it. Graham, you didn't didn't feel the same. Um, I guess I hadn't thought about it that much to be honest. I agree. I mean, he's sort of he's a bit nothingy. I mm. don't know if that's because he's miscast or if it's just because there's not enough screen time to really develop mm. him. Um, I mean, I think D'Onofrio is fantastic as Kingpin. Like, he's the best thing about any of those Marvel TV series um, for Netflix by far. Yeah, he's 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 got such an inter an internal rage, and he's such a a physically imposing character that just standing there, there's always that threat of mm -hmm. that rage coming out. And there is, you know, there was obviously. Falcone is being depicted as a very different character type where maybe it's that you know he's got brains and he's a bit squirmy and he's your uncle but he's hired all these goons and he's got this weird yeah. looking penguin fellow working for him and all this sort of stuff but well, they don't it. really yeah. they don't really depict that so it's not clear if that's actually what they're going for or if that's just me wondering <laughs> if that's what they were going for otherwise it's just like oh it's John Turturro <laughs> yeah, I guess my question is like, why is Carmine Falcone the head of this operation, which otherwise has a complete maniac in the form of the Penguin as part of it? Like, the Penguin would obviously be at the top of that operation. It just it feels like the the power levels <laughs> go down uh, the further you go up the, uh, the the family, which doesn't make sense to me. But don't know. How about Jeffrey Wright? I love Jeffrey Wright. I love Jeffrey oh, yeah. Wright as well. He's just great and everything. And I don't think he has a lot to do in this. Mm, I mean, no. he's, he's in a lot of the film, a lot of scenes. <clears throat> um, but I don't think he has you know a lot of range as a character. But I love Jeffrey Wright. He's always great and he brings a lot of gravitas to it. Yeah, yeah. he sort of mostly exists 
to uh, read out the Riddler's cards. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which is fine. Uh, but uh, he also has some sort of... I just feel like his character never really connects with Batman. Like, that, they have this pre-existing relationship that comes into the film. Um, but he literally just... You don't get it until he literally says, I trust you completely. <laughs> That's kind of how he... How it, the drama kind of presents their relationship but he he's great like his um he has the same sort of husky whispered delivery of people uncovering uh meticulous plots and that's kind of what mm. gordon has to do in this film uh, and that's all he has to do that's all he is in this film we talked a bit at the beginning about uh the presentation of the riddler but i mean uh, how do you feel like paul dano uh his vocal performance etc in the role yeah so it's um, a lot of his voice is kind of warped by you know the a kind of vocoder or perhaps a deepening uh, aspect that kind of changes it and makes it more sinister. Um, a lot of it is kind of just yelling odd words and sentences really loudly. Um, and that, but I, I still find it, I did find it a bit disturbing. I'll be honest. I think he did hit on something. Uh, and also you've got to get away from the Jim Carrey Riddler uh, <laughs> yeah. based on the tone. Like you can't do that in the tone of the film. So I feel as though his sort of sellotaped face with these glasses and him just sort of like existing in the background in that opening sequence uh, at the very start of the film uh, as a, just a silhouette uh, that kind of watched this guy around the room. I, th- I I did find him to be very creepy and um, I did enjoy his performance, I thought. Yeah, I agree with that. I, th- I mean, I think he's great. I would go further. I think he's brilliant throughout. Um, he's creepy with the deep voice. He's creepy with his high, squeaky voice. He's creepy <laughs> right. with his glasses. He's creepy with his mask. Um, yeah, it's a very physical performance. Just the way he unrolls masking tape yeah, <laughs> is creepy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you think he's he's pulling something else out during that scene quite intentionally. Yeah. Mm. But then, I, yeah, I did... I, I think the fact uh, there are some scenes where, like you say, he, he his thing is yelling the odd, uh, strange words on in his in, in a sentence. Um, but I think the fact that he is doing a performance as the Riddler it sort of excuses that. Um, it's a little too much. It's a little too kind of uh, in you know intentional. I think, but then that that sort of makes sense because he is he is performing for the cameras, mm. um, and he's 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 not necessarily gauged that right. But I think it's very impressive they've taken this incredibly kitsch uh, and uh, camp villain and then rooted him so definitively in real world anxieties, yeah. <laughs> uh, and yet retained quite a lot of his hallmarks. You know, I think that's that's a it's a real twist. I was not at all sold on it when I saw the uh, kind of you know the leaked character art, um, but then you know when you see him in the film and he's sort of you know this wheezing presence in the background and then when he attacks people it's just this barely controlled incredibly yeah. un- ungracious lunge uh yeah it's, it's it's a terrifying performance and then yeah I, I really like his confrontation uh with batman where he uh with when batman essentially rejects him and mm. he loses his mind i think that's that's great so disappointed <laughs> yeah that's like such a great scene they set it up so well with the the suggestion that Riddler has worked out that mm. Batman is Bruce Wayne. Right. And so there is so it's like great stakes and mm. great tension going into that scene. And also like, oh, you know, Riddler is a big part of the first error of the film and then barely a part of the next error at all. <laughs> um, and so when he, he, he meets 
Batman like two hours, 20 minutes in or something like that, it feels like there's been quite a lot of build-up leading to this point. Um, and I, I, he's a great foil for Batman. Like they're complete opposite performances. Pattinson is just standing there. He's, you know, immovable in most scenes. He barely expresses himself. He's just deadpan face, standing motionless. And Dano is squirming and arching his head and hunched and drooling and screaming and giving it all. Like it's I love the contrast between them. Um but I don't like the last video they find of him, which he opens with, Hey guys, thanks for all the comments, especially <laughs> all the tips on detonators. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. that uh, it's a little bit too far and to <laughs> remember to ring that bell, like and subscribe. <laughs> well it's weird, isn't it? Because it's kind of like veering literacy when it comes to technology in these films. Yeah. Uh, but like obviously it's you know, they've they've picked up on the idea that people uh on the on the sort of maniac fringes of society use these sort of forms of social media to communicate, but then they have no idea really what that means. Like a cop says, he's got 500 followers. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah mm. Brilliant. And then there's, you know, the, the, the website, which makes the entire screen go black or, you know, Gordon putting an arch villain's thumb drive into his own laptop. <laughs> like, <laughs> just stuff dumb as hell. Like, I mean, it feels like the filmmakers at times have never used a browser to look at the internet before. Mm. And it's just, <laughs> I don't know if that's just like a, a weird convention in Hollywood in the same way that people don't seem to be alarmed by the fact that nobody ever says goodbye when they hang up the phone. Is it just one of those things like that computers are these magic devices which can sort of do anything even though they are so mundane and familiar to the audience that it would immediately feel weird? Uh, there's no excuse for it. <laughs> there, there just isn't. I, mean, I know that like obviously they have to you know build fake googles for every search engine oh, yeah. search that people need to do but you'd think with the budget for a film like this that would not be a terrible problem um and you should like it's not hard to understand internet culture in 2022 <laughs> it's it's just it's right there in front of you and so if you like you think you check the script for things that made sense like 500 followers is nothing on twitch like you know what i mean i do think there's another deflatory moment in that confrontation between Riddler and Batman. It's similar to how, you know, Falcone gives them, gives Batman the revelatory information, and then it's immediately undercut by the next scene. It's that they do set up the stakes of, well, maybe Riddler has worked out that Batman is Bruce Wayne. How is Batman going to wriggle out of this one? Ah, uh, no, it's okay. He doesn't think he's mm. Bruce Wayne. Oh, okay. I thought that you know the the twist is, you thought it was interesting. But it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay. <laughs> it still, it still really works as a dramatic scene because their performances are so yeah. good, and you know uh, the music is great. Him punching impotently against the glass is great, mm. uh, but the scene has actual no real consequence whatsoever, other than it just being like another point of Batman going, "Oh wait, maybe I should stop referring to myself as vengeance and you know be nice sometimes when the woman touches me." don't push her away <laughs> i really i really like this film when it's just people talking to each other quietly but then I, I i'm not so keen on its escalation towards like mega budget action i don't think for example um that the back car chase with the penguin really works for me at all um and then the uh, the the kind of the final escalation towards the the, the flooding of the city, mm. um, I, I was just not particularly invested in that. 
But um, Tom, you mentioned earlier that you, you quite like the back car chase. I did enjoy the back car chase. Um, and a lot of it is because the soundtrack is extremely, extremely loud and good uh, oh, yeah. in the cinema. The car sounds great. And the car sounds <laughs> incredible. And I love the idea that he just sort of like jammed a jet engine onto the back of mm. like an old American muscle car. And that it's not some sort of hyper slick thing. It's just he's improvised it. And it's uh, the idea of being, it's bomb proof, it's bulletproof. Anything that happens to it, it just keeps on going. And that's kind of, that's Batman's personality, right? That's Batman's character expressed in a car form, which uh, <laughs> which is sounds dumb, but it's actually kind of the point of it. Uh, and it's the fact that he, he, there's a, a very, very, very convenient ramp one point where oh, yeah. it, <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> it does get to um you know sail out of an explosion but i really like that they, they sort of built the penguins emotions into the chase in the sense that he was desperate panic uh desperate panic desperate panic thinks he's won he's like and he says yells i got you i've got you i got you i got you uh, and then the the cat the sort of death cadillac emerges from the flames <laughs> and lands and like uh it rams him it flips in, in the same way that would definitely have killed him, um, <laughs> but he's fine. But then he's upside down, and the upside down shot of the Batman was one of the, uh, you know, the big points of the trailers. Uh, and it's just, just a really good shot. And then he sort of like leans in slowly. Um, the, the ridiculous thing about it, apart from, uh, I think it's just it takes place on a, a bunch of unidentifiable freeways that seem to interlink in ways that don't make any, may, make any sense. Um, but fundamentally. The point of a car chase is that the person you're chasing might go somewhere you where you can't find them. Whereas every character in the film knows exactly where the penguin is going to be <laughs> every day because <laughs> he runs the biggest crime club in <laughs> yeah. the city and it's well known in the underworld. It's, it's like they Batman could just park the car, gone home, come back the next day, gone into the club, penguin will be there. <laughs> like, you know, uh, so it's this idea that... He's chasing him almost out of spite and just to terrify him, uh, which is, but, but that's, I think that's a generous interpretation because I think the real reason is that the film had been slow up to that point and they needed a big chase sequence and they wanted a Batmobile. Um, mm. I, I, I love the Batmobile. I love the way that the attention builds throughout the chase and how, you know, uh, both of the, the cars like have uh, encounters jeopardy. It's absolutely ludicrous that they're running against traffic <laughs> but the thing is like the point of the sequence is not that it, you should logically break it down and think of, about why it shouldn't happen it's, it's supposed to just excite you in for a bit and then sort of calm down so that the next bit of plot can happen right um but yeah i think much might have a different take on this one um no i, I kind of you've kind of talked me around <laughs> <laughs> i did like it after all no i i, I think i think emotionally it does uh fulfill its intentions i think it's just there's just such a I don't think you can take the way that the film has been shot hitherto and use that to shoot action in a way which is then that legible because a lot of the, the just the way that people's faces are framed and uh, the kind of even the depth of field just work against a kind of coherence that's required to describe multiple cars, where they are, mm. what they're doing at the same time. And so I found it a little incoherent. There's some weird stuff. Like I, I simply do not understand why Batman revs the engine, then turns the car off, <laughs> mm. and then Penguin escapes, and then he drives after him. Mm. That's just uh, I don't really get that. I mean, uh, I'm I'm okay with the, the the convenient ramp. That's fine. And 
presumably the hundreds of people who died in that pile <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I did. I, I felt the whole thing was just slightly too difficult to follow, such that my attention wandered to the point where I was questioning why structurally this this car chase had to happen. Um, I, I I don't know. I didn't find it that that successful. But then I think maybe the problem is that, and, and this is definitely true of the sort of the escalation when it gets to you know the 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 vans parked around the city which explode and and, and flood it. Like they do so much work, sort of grounding. Batman that when the action sort of reaches towards those kind of comic book histrionics if there's a sort of um, a disjunct which is greater than if it had existed in a cilia register the whole time mm. um, and also the arena is clearly largely below street level so it's a terrible place to go in a flood but <laughs> <laughs> but I do like the idea of the kind of the Riddler corralling people into a trap uh, that's that's quite clever but then the, then the whole battle there is a little kind of they haven't worked out how that would f- physically work, or at least they don't communicate how Batman's uh, jumping around those girders physically works. It feels like it's a little mm. kind of making excuses in the cuts for action which doesn't really exist. <laughs> um, I but, think yeah, I think it's tied into um, the really weird moment where. It, so skipping back to the escape from the police station when he mm. gets to the top, and how odd that flight sequence is, and how. That. Uh, I thought it was kind of it was chaotic and it was Batman not know like his equipment is not fully formed like he doesn't have the mega cape that sort of flexes out to become wings uh, and he's just desperately suits up and you know he gets really injured except only for that scene <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a great speed to it but wasn't it just like did it jar for you it sort of like felt really odd to me like in terms of the way it was shot and the way that it was kind of tied to well, I just I don't know. It's it, that that's the scene leading up to that. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how this film has come together, but I suspect mm. that perhaps uh, um, some parts were originally meant to be attached to other scenes and then get reattached here. I don't really buy the whole uh, sequence of events where Batman gets blown up, then is somehow in a police station, right. uh, not being unmasked, then is the threat of being unmasked, and then there's the laziest excuse for him to escape, which is he punches out um, Gordon and then just walks out of out of the <laughs> room into a stairwell uh, none of that makes an, any sense at all but then i do like the, the the sort of the punctuation of that which is that he's <laughs> correctly terrified of heights mm. <laughs> and then his wingsuit escapade ends in just uh, the most ungracious uh, parachute accident <laughs> i think that's a really i worry that they they will eventually make batman too competent i like i like mm. him in this vulnerable stage i, I do agree see ya. I agree with everything you both said, even the bits that contradict <laughs> the other bits, uh, which is also how I feel about the film. Like I like the moment of vulnerability as he's jumping off the top of the building. Not just that his flight suit's not a great piece of technology and then he badly hurts himself. It's the moment where he jumps up on the ledge, looks over the side and goes, oh, <laughs> like he's, he's actually afraid for a brief yeah, moment. And, and that's humanizing in a way that I, I like. Um, but it runs counter to a lot of the other stuff I like, including the car chase, where it's the thing I like about that is that it's, again, a horror movie, essentially, where Batman is the villain. He's yes. this unstoppable mm. thing. And even when everything is exploding, you know, he cannot be stopped. And I, I really like the way that whole scene is shot. I agree, like, 
someone suggested to me that the point at the beginning where his engine goes off was that he stalled the car, <laughs> which if there had been like a reaction shot of Batman inside the vehicle, <laughs> mm. then that would have sold that as a jokey moment of like, oh no, he's, you know, it was this big dramatic lead in and then it's been just completely undercut with a bit of bathos. And that would have been cool, but that's not the tone of that chase at all. The, the, mm. There is almost no shot of Batman during that car chase. Like he gets inside the car and then he just is the car. <laughs> and it's and it's almost mm. like, you know, to me it feels like Jewel or something like that. Yeah. Where it's just the, you know, the creeping truck where you can't see the driver and this the sinister nature of that. Like it almost has that sort of vibe to it of uh, you know, Penguin is the victim running away mm. from this absolute psychopath coming <laughs> after him unstoppably. And I really like the way it's shot all in close up. Almost every there's almost no wide shots establishing the spatial relationship of of the vehicles to each other for better and worse. Essentially, like every shot is it's the the camera is really close to the wheel. The camera is like looking in the wing mirror. The, and even when Batman rams Penguin, you know you see the car coming in the wing mirror, and then the car spinning through the air. You see from inside Penguin's car with Penguin getting like thrown around before it cuts to. Um, again, it's not even a wide shot. It cuts back to the side of Batman's car, and you see Penguin's car kind of like spinning away into the distance. And so, like, I like how claustrophobic the whole thing feels. It's it's terrifying and it's it's really energetic. That view of Batman is like as the the horror antagonist is complete opposite of him being afraid at the top of the precinct, you know, trying mm. to escape. I like both of these things, but I don't know that they necessarily cohere in the same movie. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't, yeah, you're right. It doesn't really track in the sense that I, I like the idea that Batman might be scared. And I, um, one of my favorite sort of performances of a hero who is scared is in children of men um, mm. where the protagonist is actually, when shooting is happening around him, like he just looks really scared for his life, uh, as anyone might be. Uh, whereas in this, like the whole point of Batman is that he's supposed to uh, become uh, a bigger thing than himself, an icon. Uh, and that car chase sequence, I think, was perhaps the crescendo of that. And that's one of my biggest um, kind of points of irritation, perhaps, with the film is that it crescendos really early, and then the final hour. The third hour <laughs> uh, felt like a different film, where with different stakes, like they just mm. reset the plot, started it up all over again, and it was just exhausting. <laughs> Honestly, like that—that that was my main sort of reaction to it. And again, like since I've watched it since, I have the same thing. I watch the first two hours, and then I'll go off to the shops <laughs> because um, the last hour is just its own sort of self-contained thing that doesn't feel terribly—it doesn't terribly mm. flow from the rest of it. Yeah, absolutely. The plot is over at the point where yeah. Riddler is captured. That's yeah. it. Like you know, they caught caught Riddler, and Falcone is dead, and Catwoman has avenged her mother and her dead friend, and that's it. <laughs> like there is no hanging plot thread at that point, and they right. really do need to start it up again um, with you know the revelation that 
Riddler also hates his floorboards and is like carved <laughs> writing into it, just like you saw Batman do earlier. These people, why do they not just use paper? <laughs> um, and, and I suppose up again. Although that said, I do like the kind of visual of the city flooding. Like that feels, given how wet <laughs> the rest yeah. of the film has mm, been, yeah, that feels cool. like a good Nadir for Batman's journey because it also marks the point where Batman has just utterly failed. Like Falcone got killed. <laughs> he he did Riddler's bidding unwittingly. He completely failed to, to unravel any part of the mystery on his own successfully. And you can't punch water <laughs> back into the sea. <laughs> like and so there is something like so that's such a low um that's kind of compelling within the world of the film. But then I don't feel like they know what to do with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it does just turn into the, the incel snipers. And there's a weird repetition to it as well. You know, Batman gets knocked off and he's hanging from the rafters and then he gets back up and then he gets knocked off mm. the rafters again and he's hanging there. A lot um, of gantries in this film. A lot of like, <laughs> gantry yeah. fights. Yeah. And even that, like there is obviously there's an emotional payoff in that where... Batman beats that man to a pulp and they pull off his mask and Gordon says, who the hell are you? And and the guy responds, I am vengeance. Hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, but we already (laughs) had the scene with Riddler. Hmm. So we've, you know, at this point, if Batman doesn't get it, (laughs) then did we really need the incels? I don't Hmm. mind it as a plot point, this idea that Riddler is, is... the social media star building an army of internet malcontents and like yeah. broadening it out that like thematically is like a problem with the city as a whole but the film doesn't need it in terms of the character arcs of anyone yeah. and it's one extra thing and it's just like man guys save some of this for the sequel or something <laughs> yeah I, th- I think actually kind of batman's journey is over when he's Stops his like his moral journey is is finished when he stops uh, Selina from killing Falcone, because um, <clears throat> at that point he realizes like his like his argument for for stopping that isn't just some like you know I don't use guns or you know some <laughs> abstract thing about justice. It's that you don't have to pay with him. You've mm-hmm. paid enough, which I feel like is Batman suddenly experiencing compassion, you know, in a in a real way and understanding what it is to be a victim, and that feels like. That is that's the arc, that you know that's the rebuke to the libertarian macho man of Frank Miller, um, and then it doesn't really need the the whole I'm going to say you know, save uh, Bella Real in this. I guess maybe they thought they had to have a bit where Batman comes in through a glass ceiling, <laughs> and to be fair, yeah. the precise bit when he does pretty cool it's pretty good <laughs> it's pretty cool that he you know he, he's obviously lined explosions he said he saw he saw that there was a flood <laughs> and then he saw that there were lots of vulnerable people inside yeah and he spent some time yeah, laying yeah. out his explosives so that the maximum number of victims would have glass fall on top of them yeah he did uh, <laughs> he, he constructed a you know a 12 explosion firework display so he could safely land, even though he is bulletproof and bombproof, as the rest of the film has demonstrated. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is fine. He's a superhero. That's how it goes. What do you make of uh, what they did with the Joker in the little cameo? Yeah. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, I didn't need that. I don't, and I really hope the sequel is not about the Joker. And, um, uh, you know, we don't need the Joker again. 
he's not necessarily the most interesting Batman villain. Not every film needs to either be about the Joker or be setting up the Joker. He's also very similar to the Riddler. Like, if you're trying to like, you know, set a course for Batman again, like really the stuff that Joker does, like setting bombs and tricking people into going to different places, which is basically both of you know the MO for both of them, uh, like it's kind of inviting a kind of someone who wants to win an Oscar for being the Joker. There's just so many, so so many Batman villains that might be more mm. interesting. But how many of them are magical, I think, is the problem. <laughs> because I don't think, uh, at, the, at least at the kind of tenor that the, this film operates, that magic would make any sense in this world currently. And yet, you know, yeah. some of Batman's enemies are actual crocodile men. <laughs> or undead, in fact. Uh, so, yeah, I, d- I don't know where which other one they would they would pick upon, which would feel similarly grounded. I think you really have a choice of Riddler, Joker and Two-Face. Um, Scarecrow, maybe. Oh yeah, Scarecrow. Scarecrow's yeah. good. Uh, I mean, fuck it, just get Kellen Murphy to play him again. He's still yeah, creepy as heck. He, he was great. Yeah, he was yeah. good at that. Um, I don't know, Calendar Man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's yeah, always true. the one I think of as well. Uh, um, I mean, I would, I would not be averse to the sequel just being about Penguin and Rick Riddler again. I don't need it to be no. a, a rotating rogues gallery. Yeah. You've, you've introduced a bunch of interesting characters and some compelling character dynamics i kind of want to see what's next for these guys i am absolutely definitely going to watch the next film because this one was like as long as it was and i know we sort of like poked at it a lot but it was really really entertaining <laughs> i found uh, and mm. i found since on rewatches so same vibe different mystery same batman i'm into that like i will watch it definitely yeah I think I, I still feel a kind of level of uh, concern that they might double down on the this city is beyond saving level of corruption, uh, which I think just gives a free hand to, to sort of libertarian selfishness. Um, mm. I worry that they'll turn uh, like Bella Real into a corrupt figure because I've right. seen this this loop in so many things where they get like uh, somebody who is a young and idealistic person from the left and then go, aha, but wouldn't it be really interesting if they were actually evil? And I, I find that deeply tedious and unhelpful. Um, and I, I, I worry that that could, that could easily happen. I also worry that, like you say, they could just end up trying to do an escalation by throwing loads of villains at it. But I see, I see lots of peril <laughs> for, for a potential <laughs> sequel. But uh, I, 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 do, I did like this one sufficiently that if, if they could continue in the direction they're going i don't know that i particularly care that uh for for a more backstory i don't necessarily want there to be a, a combined universe for this across lots of different media I, f- I feel like that hasn't worked out well for dc so far but I, if there is to be a combined universe i would prefer it to be matt reeves universe than uh mr snyder's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Agreed. yeah i agree with all that but you know they have announced the Penguin series for HBO or whatever, and I will watch it. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. well, they, Colin, they, Colin they is good. Yeah. He's dead good in this, having a lot of fun. I yeah, but I really hope the sequel, whatever it ends up being, is small stakes. You know, it doesn't feel like the end of this film necessitates an escalation, and so, you know, let let the waters recede and make it another detective story but a better detective story, please. That will almost certainly not happen, but <laughs> it's my hope. Yeah, so uh, like the Daredevil um, was a good series for a 
couple of seasons, I think. And then it was the escalation into sort of like international uh, ghost ninjas that was actually <laughs> the problem with it. It was it was like the, the characters at the heart of it were uh, fantastic and really well casted. Uh, and I do, yeah, I share the worry that it might go. Like, don't go yeah. to Razzogul and stuff like that. Yeah, I think I, 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 I mean this seems to be a problem particularly for for DC heroes that they they work really well when they're in their own backyard, but as soon as they they step into the sort of the global scheme, um, there's there's all kinds of power mismatches. I mean, mm. this this universe described here does, is not a universe in which Superman exists, no. and it could not be, and it would be much worse if it was. You don't uh, want to see Robert Pattinson standing on a space station with Superman and Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's quite telling that um, there's a moment where, uh, you know, uh, the thumb drive moment, which is actually probably the worst part of the film, perhaps, um, uh, is, oh, my God, it's emailing all of my contacts with with the vital information. Um, But none of them are like Metropolis. Like, they're all like Gotham. Oh, really? As far as I could tell. Um, So it feels as though they've been quite careful with kind of not bringing that into it. So Hmm. fingers crossed. Any other bat thoughts? What would you do with Batman if given a free hand, Marsh? This is a question I'm reading from a sheet that you wrote, so I'm hoping you have an interesting answer. Uh, I, I really don't. <laughs> I, I mean, I suppose I would say that I'd keep um, Batman completely self-enclosed. I mean, I don't particularly. I, I feel like the expression of Batman as a sort of uh, uh, colourful camp character has already been done uh, hmm. and i think the you know the best versions of that already exist and i don't feel a real need to revisit it i think talking about using batman to talk about um vigilanteism and the sort of uh, libertarian ideals that frank miller espouses and using batman uh, to deconstruct those <laughs> would be would be good um but i i don't know that um i wouldn't say i, I was I'm bored of the character because I, I really enjoyed this film. But there's, unlike other other properties, I don't immediately see uh, a way of kind of revitalizing them that I'm super excited about. How about you guys? So I agree that Frank Miller is uh, problem- problematic, especially nowadays. I don't think he was always as bad as he is now, though. And I, I do think there are interesting ideas in... Dark Knight Returns, which mm, is the most yeah. famous Batman comic he did. And, you know, I would still like to see an old Batman story, you know. Mm. Uh, so, so the Batman movie I would make, I would cast Michael Keaton as Batman uh, oh, and yeah. play a Batman the age that he is now. Because um, the setup for Dark Knight Returns is that Batman is retired, and the reason he's retired is because he was kind of successful. Like he caught the Joker and all the other villains and they've been in Arkham Asylum and the city has been okay for like 20 years. And so like it starts off from a place of, well, there was hope. Not Everything is not doomed. Um, there is then obviously <laughs> a turn towards the worst that drags Batman back. Um, but I think it's an interesting story. Um, an old kind of broken Batman uh, who doesn't have the powers of combat that he once did, trying to step back into that role? And there's, you know, there's interesting stuff with Robin in that comic mm. as well. Yeah, and you know, Robin's almost never good <laughs> in any story. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, I think I I, I think maybe not a straight adaptation of uh, Dark Knight Returns because a lot of it is very eighties, um, but there are ideas from it that I would like to see pilfered and used in a film. Yeah, Michael, Michael Keaton sort of reprising the role would be amazing, uh, especially because like he did it in a sort of quite meta way in Birdman, uh, mm. which is a film I really enjoy. Uh, it's it's a very different film about uh, you know British uh, actors in a very claustrophobic theatre. Uh, trying to put on a show and uh, a guy who's um, famous past but he's haunted by uh, his former success in the form of a giant looming creature that just talks to him all the time uh, it's very good uh, so that energy would if that was like put into an ad- adaptation of um, Batman Returns could be kind of interesting like, it could be really good I think I would like to see I, if this film had been a six-part series with a good detective mystery, it would be the best telly. I think it would just it would have been fantastic. Uh, so I think I would like to see a kind of series, uh, just completely like fantasist uh, thoughts, but like a series with the same cast that does the Court of Owls arc with Batman. Um, have you guys heard of the Court of Owls? Yeah. No. And the Court of Owls basically, not spoil it necessarily, but um, uh, it's a sort of long, dark tea time of the soul for Batman, where he gets dragged into a dungeon by a cult, and he has to go through all of these uh, rooms full of puzzles, very Riddler-like, very Joker-like, uh, but they're also just kind of uh, expressions of how Gotham used to be. And he has to fight through them, and he gets increasingly, you know, weary and poisoned, and doesn't have any food, etc. And it's a kind of really grueling mission that Batman doesn't tend to go on. He tends to just go and punch the guy uh, who is the problem. <laughs> Whereas this is more like a, you know, a sort of psychological torture, which uh, sounds awful, but would make a great six-part HBO series. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'd watch that. <laughs> yeah, on that sinister note. <laughs> <laughs> on that sinister note, that's all the Batman we have time for. You can find us on Twitter at Creighton Crowbar. You can watch this audio recording on YouTube, uh, the address for which is youtube.com slash Creighton Crowbar. You can back us on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Creighton Crowbar. Backers don't get charged for these lock-in episodes. They only get charged for the game pod. Or you can join our lovely Discord community the link for which is on our website, creightoncrowbar.com. That's it. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Tom Zenia. And I've been Graham Smith. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, everybody.